Hi, welcome to another episode of the Carolyn Glick Middle East News Hour. And this week, what I really want to do is go a little bit further afield from the Middle East and to the war that nobody really wants to talk about anymore, but we need to because it's impacting everything and driving uh, the United States and Russia into a war uh, if they're not already in one. And that, of course, is the war in Ukraine. Um, there have been a lot of things going on there, both on the ground militarily from a humanitarian perspective and also from the perspective of how the war is impacting U.S. standing in the world, is impacting NATO, and is impacting uh, what everybody feels the most immediately, which is the uh, global economy and specifically the Western economy, the economy of the Western world. Um, and the person that I chose to speak about this with is my friend, David Goldman, because David Goldman from the Asia Times and from Pajamas Media is uh, not only is he a close friend of mine and a Renaissance man and, and capable of talking about all things, but he also has been writing from the very outset of this conflict um, against the grain. And from the outset of this conflict, the grain has been, oh, absolutely, Ukraine has to beat Russia. And this is a war that's really going to bring Putin to his knees. Uh, Biden was talking about uh, Putin as a war criminal, and he has to be toppled, essentially adopting regime change in Russia, of all places, as America's foreign policy goal in Ukraine, um, and then uh, thinking that he was going to be able to achieve that goal without military force directly through crippling sanctions that were going to reduce the ruble to rubble, which hasn't happened. Um, so, um, you know, I had been raising an eyebrow at this from the outset, and I don't know whether I would have without having read uh, David Goldman's analyses from the outset of the uh, of the war in Ukraine and in the months preceding it with the Russian troop buildup on Ukraine's borders. So I want to talk to David. I think we should all listen to him and try to understand what this means for the United States, what this means for uh, global stability, international security, and finally what this means for Israel, uh, which is... Um, uh, has been siding with the United States against Russia and joining the NATO sanctions to various degrees. Um, so uh, without further ado, let me just change it to the gallery view and welcome you, David Goldman, back to the Carolyn Glick Middle East News Hour. Thanks. No, for thank you, Carolyn. It's an honor and privilege always to talk to you. And thank you very much for the kind words. Oh, well, they're well deserved. Uh, so, David, first of all, before we begin, you know, discussing the larger implications, can you can we talk a little bit about um, where the war is right now, what the center of gravity is, what the human toll is being is for the Ukrainians and um, uh, and what what the prognosis is for going forward um, on the ground militarily? Russia is now fighting an old-fashioned war of attrition. One European military observer told me it's been so long since anyone fought a real conventional war with modern armies that they had to relearn how to do it. The initial stupidities of the Russian military, such as sending long columns of tanks down roads where they could be picked off with uh, modern anti-tank missiles, uh, that's a thing of the past. Over the past six weeks, the Russians, as one Pentagon observer put it, have shown they can well coordinate infantry, artillery, armor, and air. Uh, they're running a relatively low casualty approach for them, taking advantage of their massive advantage in artillery, which is estimated at anywhere from 15 to 1 to 40 to 1 against the Ukrainians. So the war of attrition is gradually grinding up Ukrainian forces 
in uh, the Donbass. That's the eastern industrial region of Ukraine with most of the Russian speakers and 75% of Ukraine's industrial capacity. And the key battle still uh, in progress, but whose outcome is all but a foregone conclusion, is around the city of Serodonetsk where a small number of Ukrainian defenders are still holding out, but the Russians have been pouring uh, material in. <clears throat> Very importantly, Russian artillery, both conventional artillery and uh, rockets are for the most part smart weapons. They've got good guidance system. They can send drones out and pinpoint targets and send the coordinates back and get a shell, you know, very close to where they want to at a very short period of time. So this massive and well-directed Russian effort is gradually tearing up Ukraine, Ukraine's capacity to fight. Regarding the human cost, uh, the best estimates we've heard from American military observers off the record are that Ukraine is down about 70,000 soldiers. That would be about 10,000 killed, 50,000 to 60,000 wounded and about 10,000 prisoners. Uh, we've heard, but we can't confirm that uh, Ukraine is sending recruits uh, right to the front with a um, training period of no more than two weeks and that this contingent is suffering very high casualties. I think you wrote, I think it was your statistic that said that 65% of the Ukrainians are getting are getting wounded or something like uh, that. Of these new recruits uh, hustled to the front. And the great danger for Ukraine, of course, is a war of attrition cannot possibly be to Ukraine's advantage. Russia's economy is 10 times the size of Ukraine. Uh, its army is many times larger. And although there are many criticisms of the Russian army that it's made up of poorly trained conscripts and not particularly efficient. Nonetheless, they seem to know how to use their artillery and their aircraft perfectly well. Uh, and the campaign that they're running is simply a way of grinding down the Ukraine and destroying eventually its capacity to fight. That, in my view, is the Russian objective. Russia's fighting the kind of war with exactly that objective. But do Remember, you think that the territorial ambitions of uh, that Putin's territorial ambitions are limited to the Donetsk region? Do you think that he wants only to uh, uh, seize control over Eastern Ukraine, the Russian uh, speaking areas of the country along with the Crimea and, and, let, uh, and let the Ukrainians uh, alone in the rest of the country and Kiev yeah, and it, other places? Ter territory is an opportunistic consideration. When Putin started the war, uh, which I emphasize is a reprehensible and illegal war, I'm, I'm no admirer of Putin, quite the opposite. I think he, what he's done is terrible. Uh, but he was quite specific about what he wanted to do. First, he wanted to, quote, denazify Ukraine, which means he wanted to kill off the hardcore Ukrainian nationalists represented by entities such as the Azov. Battalion. Which are in fact NATO, which are in fact Nazis. I mean, they oh, are yeah, in fact Nazi battalions. Absolutely, there are tons of Nazis. They're Nazis, you know, they have uh, uh, swastika tattoos and all kinds of things. So there have been tons of exposés in the American press. So yes, there are Nazis. Uh, but more importantly, he wanted to demilitarize Ukraine. 
his objective is not to gain this or that piece of territory, though certainly a minimum requirement would be the Donbass region and the south uh, adjacent to Crimea. I think he wants to um, uh, probably take uh, a bit more than he's got around Kherson in the south and cut the uh, river Dnieper basically, cut Ukraine in half. I don't think he wants to conquer all of Ukraine. He doesn't need Western Ukraine, which is Catholic, anti-Russian, and mainly agricultural. Now, the objective, when he says demilitarize Ukraine, he means to destroy Ukraine's capacity to fight for an extended period of time and eliminate the possibility that Ukraine could be a platform for threats against Russia coming from NATO. And I think he wanted to take Kiev quickly. He sent in paratroopers who got chopped up pretty badly at the Kiev airport at the beginning. That was an opportunistic grab. But as is typical for the Russians, their first exercise in any war is generally incompetent stumbling around. And after a certain amount of bloodshed, they figure out how to fight it and they get down. No. Uh, I, just one thing on that, Edward Lutzak had a really good interview in tablets, uh, in Tablet Online magazine with David Samuels, where he was saying that essentially uh, the Russian general staff suffered from the same malady as the Americans, which is that they uh, they believe their propaganda about shock and awe operations and that you can, uh, with effects and, and uh, uh, you can take, you can take down the uh, the enemies, uh, the the enemies, uh, power centers, and in in 24 hours, and everything will be fine. And that was basically the and and they came up at the Ukraine uh, at uh, the Kiev airport when they went there at the outset of the war. They came up against the reality that all of these Ukrainians were coming to the airport. You know, just these local. Uh, Ukrainians who didn't like the idea of the Russians taking over and they came with their rifles or whatever and they just started shooting them up that they weren't special forces they weren't anything they were basically the National Guard of Ukrainians who just said you know you're not going to mess with us today and got them all chopped up so it that was then what forced Putin to regroup and do what you say which is basically a war of annihilation through attrition and, and here I just wanted to back up for a second, because you could fight a war of attrition against Russia under two circumstances. One is if you had a full supply, a consistent supply of, of artillery that you could beat their artillery with, and also if you could bring the war in some way to Russia so that it wouldn't just be Ukraine that's feeling the pain, uh, the physical pain of war, and Russia being immune to it from everything except for, you know, boycott from uh, from Western companies and the SWIFT banking system, etc. Uh, but that uh, a they are not getting steady uh, supply from NATO from the United States. Um, they also don't know really how to use U.S.-made uh, equipment because they were mainly a Soviet-platformed military, if I'm not mistaken. And so they still don't have the training to use things like American MLRSs. Um, and then, you know, the, the supplies are actually not forthcoming in a way that they should be. And the Americans don't want them to be attacking Russia because that could pull the United States into a war. Oh, yeah. There, there's a lot to unpack. I mean, you just said, Carolyn. First problem is a logistical one with Russian long range artillery controlling most of the roads coming in and out of the Donbass and Russian planes uh, easily able to interdict rail shipments. It's physically extremely difficult to move heavy equipment 
in. And the, the question one would ask is why was this equipment not moved in to begin with? Well, I think the American uh, military and European militaries made mistakes as big as the Russians. Well, that was the other thing that Lutwak said, just to just to round out his his comment about it, which I thought was important, was that when he said that the Russians suffered from the same malady as the Americans, the Americans thought uh, when they were looking at the Ukraine, uh, that the Ukrainians would just collapse in the face of superior Russian firepower and shock and awe operations in places like Ukraine. So the United States was gambling, even while it was claiming to be pro-Ukrainian and this, this shall not stand and all the rest of it, they were gambling, they were assuming that the Ukrainians wouldn't fight. And so they didn't take any of the kind of steps that you would take if you think that the Ukrainians would fight, he argued, uh, because the Americans didn't think they would, which is why uh, Biden offered uh, Zelensky a ride out of uh, Kiev that he didn't take because he thought that the Americans had his back in fighting Russia. And so that was what he decided to do. And that's what the Ukrainians were doing. Yes, well, remember that the United States uh, had uh, at least 150 military advisors in Ukraine before the war started and had begun shipment of Javelin missiles and other high-tech hardware in large numbers. That's part of the reason that Putin went in. If you see the West uh, you, uh, arming Ukraine rapidly, uh, you may make the decision that it's better to move in now when the cost of taking it would be cheaper than to wait until they're sufficiently armed. Um, I'm not at all sure that the United States expected Russia to, uh, expected uh, Ukraine to collapse. Uh, immediately. Uh, certainly that view shifted within a few days of the outbreak of the war to a triumphalist view that Russia was about to collapse, Putin was about to be kicked out of office, and the Russian economy would be no more. Uh, certainly the United States vastly overestimated the impact of that. What do you think that that was based on? I mean, what, what indication did the United States have that that was the case? You know, the American policy has been so confused and made so many errors, it's hard to go back and untie all of the errors retrospectively. But I think that the, uh, I think that the American view of Russia has always been that it's much more fragile than it actually is. Uh, in 2014, when the United States, particularly Victoria Newland, who was then Assistant Secretary of Europe, is now Under Secretary of State, when Victoria Newland uh, helped stage manage the Maidan coup, which in turn prompted Russia's takeover of Crimea, uh, the State Department sincerely believed that the Maidan coup would be the prelude to a similar regime change in Russia. Today, Kiev, tomorrow, uh, uh, tomorrow Moscow. Uh, Putin turned out to be far more resilient than the uh, uh, that the State Department at the time believed. Uh, but I think that the United States expected that the combination of whatever military action we took and the economic sanctions would crush the Russian economy, reduce it, as Biden said, by 50%, uh, lead to an economic collapse, which would in turn lead to the um, uh, overthrow of Putin. So 
The U.S. undertook all kinds of measures against Russian oligarchs, taking their yachts and private planes and so forth, in the belief that if you made life uncomfortable for wealthy people in Russia, uh, they would somehow contribute to an effort to remove Putin from office. And of course, no such thing happened. Uh, if anything, the sanctions have been an own goal, uh, according to the International Monetary Fund. Russia right, but before we get into that, so just for a second, so the, the, the State Department, the Biden administration completely misunderstood um, what the implications of what their actions were going to be. And right now what we have is a situation on the ground in Ukraine where because the supply lines from the West to the front in Ukraine are under a Russian control, either directly through their artillery or, I mean, indirectly through artillery and through through their air, air superiority, um, the Ukrainians don't have any good option for winning the war of attrition so that they're facing defeat, at least in Eastern Ukraine, uh, as, as we're looking at things today. Excuse me for a second. Um, so the, the Ukrainians don't have that that option of uh, of winning anymore. Um, and then uh, and so the the Americans were first and foremost wrong on that on their triumphalist view that uh, that Zelensky and and his and his battalions were going to beat uh, the Russians. And that that's a very big deal. We're facing right now something that people aren't that willing to acknowledge, which is Ukrainian defeat at the hands of Russia, at least uh, in the current iteration of the war. And the United States, of course, and NATO are not going to get involved directly military in direct military operations against Russia, at least uh, that's uh, unless something very strange happens. So that's what we're facing on the ground. And then the larger economic issue is that the United States thought that they were going to be able to collapse the Russian economy with, you know, with, with a little bit of pain to, to the United States and to Europe because Russia's uh, a very large role that they play in, in oil and gas exports to the world economy, but that that was gonna be nothing in comparison to what they were doing to, to Russia by distancing it or most of its uh, banks from, from the SWIFT banking system. And from uh, and from boycotting, uh, oper uh, you know, from ending operations of a lot of American and Western companies in in Russia, and and boycotting Russian goods, etc. So um, so that was what they thought. And now let's go, yes, to the sanctions. So what have they done to the Russian economy, and what what have they done to to the global economy or to the American and European economies? And then from there we're going to go to. Uh, the latest uh, iteration of all of the uh, Western shenanigans, I guess you could call them with NATO and, and the Biden administration with the uh, yeah. visit at the end of the week by the leaders of France and Germany and, and Italy to, to Kiev. So let's go to the sanctions. Well, the rise in the oil price as a result of the reduction in Russian exports was like a hammer dropping on an already very sore toe. Remember, we had extremely high inflation, the highest in 40 years in the West before this latest surge in energy prices. Uh, that was the result of $15 trillion or so of collective stimulus by Western governments in response to the COVID-19 pandemic. Once this additional jump in the oil price happened from the mid 80s to the $120 level, 
that produced a second wave of inflation and the central banks responded in their typical stupid fashion, which is simply raise interest rates. Although interest rates had nothing to do with that. This was a supply shock, not a monetary problem. So that's created enormous distress in Western financial markets. It's caused a free fall of the Japanese yen and a free fall of a number of bond markets. The Europeans are terrified Italy may blow up. They had an emergency meeting of the European Central Bank to talk about bailing out the periphery. The Japanese are at serious risk. Japan is, the, is perhaps the weakest link in the world financial system with the biggest government debt load uh, of any major country in the world. And the possibility of a major financial accident is significant. Meanwhile, the Russians are making more money than ever. Uh, and they're rewarding the countries that didn't participate in sanctions like uh, China and India by selling them oil at 30 to $40 a barrel below the price that everybody else pays. So the West has been thrown into a possible financial crisis. It's not a financial crisis yet, but this is a significant risk, a recession in the United States. And there's no question that we are in a recession that is two quarters of negative GDP growth, uh, the Democratic Party's electoral chances for this year's congressional elections and the 2024 presidential election are very dim indeed. And the West as a whole has been seriously weakened. So that was a miscalculation on a grand scale on the part of the West. Very hard to back out of, just as you said, after Biden denounced Putin as a war criminal announced that he could not remain in office and uh, basically said it's a war to the end, uh, that kind of paints him into a corner. He's nonetheless tried to wriggle out of it. Uh, his personal operative at the Defense Department is a fellow named Colin Kahl, whom Israelis will know is one of the key players in the uh, Iran nuclear deal. Colin he's a real, he, Colin Call is a real Israel hater. I mean, like, yes, he's an anti-Israel uh, hater. Yeah, but he was Biden's personal national security council when Biden was VP. He was Biden's personal operative at the Defense Department. He gave a remarkable statement last week saying, we're not going to tell Zelensky what to do. Zelensky can negotiate or not negotiate as he pleases. Just as the unholy three of Europe, Olaf Scholz of Germany, Emmanuel Macron of France, and Mario Draghi of Italy, pulled up in Kiev a couple of days before Pope Francis had given an interview to La Stampa saying uh, this war was provoked. Not that I like Putin, Putin's bad, but the West provoked the war, uh, which was a way of saying you, know, you have to give Putin some kind of out. And it was why they reported we don't know exactly what was said, that the European leaders told Zelensky, please negotiate with Russia. And the United States appears to be leaving that option open. The problem is the US has no good options. If you accede to any Russian demands right now, they would be unacceptable. Putin feels he's winning. He's he is winning. His, I mean, he, he is winning, right? I mean, he's attriting not only the, Europe, the Ukrainians, he's attriting the West. Yes, from, from the standpoint of Putin's uh, strategic objectives, which is to reassert Russia as a major power and prevent the West from using Ukraine as a platform 
against Russia as a major power, Putin thinks he's winning. So even if you offer him terms now, Putin is sure he'll get better terms two months from now when the Ukraine uh, when Ukraine starts running out of soldiers. Can we talk so, for one second, just a, a little backup? Um, we talked about the damage for Ukraine and the number of soldiers, et cetera. But Russia has also lost a lot of soldiers, and um, they also have have suffered significant economic damage, haven't they? I mean, what is the situation for Russia right now, a uh, hundred or so days into this war? Russia has probably lost several tens of thousands of soldiers killed and wounded. Uh, they can replace them as long as the war that they're fighting does not involve major infantry offenses, as long as they have a low casualty approach, which focuses on reducing the Ukrainian side from artillery and taking limited amounts of territory, uh, they can keep this up for quite some time. Uh, the Russian elites have rallied around Putin because they're so afraid of chaos that they don't want to consider the possibility of replacing Putin. When you say that, I mean, on the other hand, the, 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 the Western media and British uh, intelligence has just been, you know, British intelligence says, you know, on, on the, in the Financial Times and all of the others, the Times of London, um, that Putin has cancer, that Putin's uh, uh, in Siberia, that, um, that uh, uh, what else have they said? Oh, that, um, you know, the uh, Russian uh, ambassador, I think, or something like that in, in Geneva to the UN institutions in Geneva quit because he can't stand the war anymore. And look, all of the elites are, are against Putin. And now you're saying something that that says that that presents a different picture that actually the elites in in Russia are, are pro Putin. Uh, they've no, they're not pro Putin. Nobody's pro Putin. Putin came in after Yeltsin had let the oligarchs loot the Russian economy to the point of ruin and bankruptcy. He is the capo di tutti capi. He's the boss of bosses who's there to rationalize the corruption and limit it to the point that it doesn't kill the host. Uh, no one likes him and no one should. He's not a nice guy. But uh, this is not the time to overthrow the boss of bosses when the country is in trouble. And from every opinion poll we've seen, no exceptions, um, including by independent outfits and you know some very sophisticated sounding uh, done by my friend David Wu through uh, internet polls, uh, the people have rallied around. The Russians feel Russia is being unfairly treated and They'll do what Russians always do. They'll grumble, they'll get drunk, but they'll follow orders. So the kind of war that Putin is currently running against Ukraine, which is very specific focused artillery barrage to gain limited amounts of territory and destroy Ukrainian forces and capacity to fight an infrastructure, Russia can do this for a very long time. The idea that's so popular in the West that Putin wants to be Peter the Great, he wants to extend the Russian empire to the borders of Germany and maybe beyond. He's mad for conquest. It's all about pride and so forth. I think this is complete drivel, Carolyn. Putin is a rational actor, a nasty but rational actor whose objectives are very clear. He's going to control the near abroad of Russia, protect the Russians who are there, destroy any force that might affect him, 
uh, as any number of people have said, Putin's view of American missiles in Ukraine is pretty much the same as our view would be of Russian missiles in Mexico. We wouldn't stand for it. We'd send in Marines. Because, I mean, you know, you when you're looking at it, you say, well, on the other hand, the Swedes and the Finns just almost, I mean, they just rushed to join NATO, you know, for the first time ever. Uh, and and it feels like, you know, I, I was speaking to Finn, not, not anybody part of the, the government, but I asked him, you know, why, why are you joining NATO? What do you think that NATO is going to do for you? And I mean, there was just sort of a herd mentality. You didn't have a good explanation for what he thought. That, I said, do you think oh, that you know, I, I, the think U.S. Yeah. is going to send forces to Finland to protect you from Russia? I mean, what, what, what's, your, what's your view here? Oh, Carolyn, when, when, when Germany had 1.2 million soldiers and 1,000 uh, top-of-the-line main battle tanks in 1990, Finland and Sweden didn't need to join NATO because Germany had the best army in Europe at a significant deterrence. And the French had a serious army in those days. I'm told reliably the French army, which looks kind of okay on paper, has a week's worth of ammunition for a war. So Germany now is 200,000 soldiers, uh, you know, maybe 100 battle-ready tanks. They might be able to scramble half a dozen fighters on any, at any given moment. After 30 years of turning NATO into a social welfare organization okay. and bringing in everybody from Bulgaria to Romania and every you know, place that we can't defend at all, ceased to be a defensive organization at all, Putin undertakes the first serious land war in Europe since World War II, and everyone else looks at what they've got and says, we are defenseless. So the first thing they do is run and hide behind the skirts of the United States. They have nowhere else to go. What Germany should do is be Israel, have a draft, require everyone, as it did before Miracle lifted this, to return the so-called Wehrpflicht conscription and have a real army. Because right now, Putin could take a column of tanks and start in Magdeburg and drive across Germany to Aachen and the Germans couldn't do very much about it. I'm exaggerating slightly. So they're in a panic, as everyone is. Putin should not have started this land war in Europe. It was a wicked and dangerous thing to do, and it scared the pants off everyone. So they're all running you know, to try to figure out something to do about it. The most ridiculous are the Poles. The Poles are buying F-35s, which they don't need. Lutwak had a very clever remark. So they buy boats for show and... F-35s, which they don't need, but they refuse to introduce conscription in Poland. So the Poles who hate the Ukrainians only slightly less than they hate the Russians. There were enormous massacres of Poles by Ukrainians during World War II, are thrilled to watch the Ukrainians fight the Russians, hoping they'll destroy each other. I, I, I don't know. It's all becoming a little bit too... too uh, yeah. Uh, I, I don't know yeah, what the word would be. Yes. Yeah, it's a, but but let's just go for a second then to to the United States and its policy towards Ukraine is is a complete shambles. Uh, it it makes no sense. I mean, I I would argue, and I, and I know you've argued that from the outset it made absolutely no sense because the United States never really had any option or interest in fighting for Ukrainian sovereignty and independence against Russia. 
So the United States is ostensibly, you know, called for regime change, called it called uh, Putin, uh, um, you know, a war criminal, um, and and uh, did everything except uh, yeah. send the send the send the uh, Rangers into to to Moscow, you know, in terms of uh, going to war against Russia, and um, they didn't have any plan for achieving that goal if they wanted to. They didn't have any clear reason for wanting to make that their goal. And now they're stuck. The Ukrainians are losing. The, the, the brilliant sanctions that they placed on, on Russia have completely backfired and caused massive harm to the American economy and to the Western economy. And, and something we didn't talk about, which is that they're also uh, causing a collapse of the world economy and not a collapse in the sense that everybody's falling together, but rather that you know, you're getting a bifurcation of the economy now where you have the bricks on the one side that are putting together this alternative economic system for themselves and banking system for themselves. And you have, and you have the United States and, and, and the EU and the Western, so that you know, this is something that we have, I don't think we've seen. You know, and uh, so all of these things are yeah. massive catastrophes for the United States. And Biden is doing what? He's falling off bicycles. The United States, yes, the United States clearly thought that the Ukraine war would decisively weaken Russia and maybe even get Putin out of power. That that was a huge misestimate on our part. We have, on numerous occasions use small peoples as a proxy to go after our enemies and sacrifice them. Ask the Hungarians why they're not particularly enthusiastic about supporting the Ukraine war. They'll tell you in 1956, the United States told us to rise up against the Russians and look what happened to us. We did that with the Czechs. We did that with the Kurds in Syria who got rid of ISIS for us and then we threw them out of the bus. A lot of the world remembers Henry Kissinger's marvelous statement that it's often dangerous to be an enemy of the United States, but it's fatal to be our friend. Yeah, look at the South so, Vietnamese. Remember them? This, yes, whom Kissinger also threw out of the bus. Right. So from the standpoint of small countries who are American allies, looking at how America sacrifices its allies for perceived strategic advantage, with such incompetence and also such abandon, uh, everyone is, is going to be thinking very carefully about the benefits of being an American ally. And that's not good for the United States. As an American, I find that uh, frightening. How do you explain it? I mean, you know, this is the second strategic collapse, the catastrophe really that, the, that Biden has overseen in under a year. I mean, in August of 2021, you had uh, the withdrawal from Afghanistan, which even if you, you know, even supporters of, of American uh, withdrawal from Afghanistan were, were blown away by his incredible incompetence. I mean, he left $90 billion of U.S. advanced weapons, much of it, you know, in the hands of the Taliban. Yeah, it'll only be, 50, only be 56 billion in Ukraine when <laughs> this is over. Well, assuming that any of that 56 billion is actually being used to help the Ukrainians as opposed to, you know, uh, promote transgender, I don't know what, uh, school principals. But, you know, you, 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 uh, you, you have, uh, you have 
this is this is a catastrophe. I don't even know what what precedent you would use. I guess you could go back to fifty seven or sixty eight in in uh, Budapest and in Prague, but even they were part of an overall Cold War strategy of uh, containing Russia and of uh, of like you said, using uh, third party wars to fight and not uh, and and acting on the periphery more and and. Um, there was a strategic concept that the United States was following inexorably, which led through Reagan uh, to the collapse of the Soviet Union. But it, you know, it was a terrible thing, but it, it didn't overturn the apple cart. And here, I think on so many different levels, as you said, this is the first major conventional battle in Europe since the Second World War, arguably, at least of this scale. I mean, you could look at Ukraine, at, at Yugoslavia, but, um, you know, this is, this is a, this is a massive, huge, huge, huge mess. It's not in Afghanistan. Nobody, everybody pretends that they don't care about or it doesn't really matter or whatever, but Europe. Well, the great beneficiary of all this, of course, is China. China has been very clever. It hasn't done anything to overtly violate American sanctions and bring secondary sanctions on its companies. Uh, it's been supporting the Russians of buying tons of their oil, though of course at a very discounted price. Uh, it will help the Russian civilian aircraft industry and a few other things, uh, but it will just wait for the dust to settle. And as Henry Kissinger warned, Russia will become an outpost of China in Europe. And the result of the economic weakening of the West uh, is ultimately gonna be to China's benefit. China's already, uh, the world's largest economy in purchasing power parity terms. Uh, already able uh, in the view of many experts, including, and I'm not an expert, but it's my view that uh, able to defeat the United States in a war close to its coasts. And the United States stands to enter a period of strategic decline like nothing we've seen since uh, uh, Britain after Suez. So, I mean, do you see anything but stupidity behind this? I mean, I don't want to get into the tin hat, you know, a tinfoil hat uh, territory, but I mean, it, the sanctions were so ill-conceived um, that it, it, and so harmful. I mean, you just look at the numbers. Russia is the largest single exporter of wheat in the world and Ukraine is the second largest, or I think, or anyway, the very significant. I mean, this is this is the world's food supply. You know, forget a second about energy prices, which you shouldn't forget about, but I mean, th this, this is how you feed humanity. And now, and US sanctions uh, place, place the world's, so, I mean, obviously Putin did, but, but by, by, by having, by levying these sanctions against Russia, you, the United States exacerbated a very dangerous situation that had already ensued when Russia invaded. I don't these, are, these are crazy, these are crazy policies. I, I don't see anything but stupidity here, Carolyn. I can't imagine who could possibly uh, benefit from the blow up of the sanctions and the blow back of the sanctions. Um, I think that the global elite that constitutes the uh, Washington establishment, what people call the Washington blob, 
really live in a world of their own devising and their own imagination. They're ideologically motivated. They have believed since the end of the Cold War that the end of history is upon us, that the great era of democracy and free markets and liberalism is the right side of history. And it's their privilege to be able to promote that by trampling anyone who disagrees with them. Uh, it simply isn't working out that way. So hopefully there will be a change in view in Washington. Uh, the echo chamber uh, on behalf of this view of the Ukraine war has been so dense, the noise level has been so extreme that it needs a very big voice to boom over the chatter. And that voice belongs to Donald Trump. Uh, I have many criticisms of Donald Trump. Uh, I've supported him reluctantly in two elections, but he is absolutely right that the Ukraine war is unnecessary and that it wouldn't have happened if he'd been in office. Trump, there are you know, a dozen reasons to oppose Trump and one uh, small reasons, one big one to support him, which is that he doesn't believe the United States should run around the world trying to impose its beliefs and system on other people. See, that's the thing though with Trump and, and, and I don't wanna, I, I don't belittle at all what he's saying because I think that you know, one of the reasons why his presidency was ultimately a failure was because he couldn't get beyond the Trump-Russia narrative, which I think was placed there in order to paralyze his foreign policy. Because, yes. you know, the, the, the Obama administration had gone out of their way uh, to demonize Putin and to use him as a bogeyman in the 2016 election. And, tr and by doing so, they, they made it impossible for, for, for Trump to reach out to to Putin and to try to reach an agreement with him when there was a there was actually a very good chance that one could be made against China and against Iran, um, and in obviously in in favor of both Russian power, but also more important, most importantly, in in, in favor of America's national interests and, and and security interests globally, um, and that was that was blocked by the Trump Russia thing, and then when that didn't pan out, they went immediately to Ukraine. Right. And, and the and the impeachment there was about Ukraine. And it was and it was, again, a main a way to maintain uh, it was a way to maintain the Russian narrative, even after it had collapsed and prevent America from reaching any sort of of, uh, of condominium of interest. And and here I want to say one thing, which is that that's very worrisome. I don't know. I agree that what Trump said about, you know, it wouldn't have happened under my watch is correct. And we wouldn't be facing this mess on so many different levels if he had been re-elected re in, in 2020. But one of the things that I find amazing, and you've commented on it, and, and our friend Lee Smith has commented on it, and a lot of people have commented on it, which is that it's not that you have a Democrat uh, echo chamber like we had in 2015 with the Iran nuclear deal and we have today as well with the with the Biden administration's appeasement efforts towards Iran at, at its own expense and of course at the expense of its allies. But you have a Republican echo chamber as well, aside from Rand Paul. I don't think that there have been any significant Republican voices who have been speaking out against it. There was massive bipartisan support for the 53 billion that uh, that uh, Biden uh, is wants to give to Ukraine in some way or another. Very little oversight over what he intended to do with that money or how it would get there. There's been no critical discussion in Washington that I've been able to see outside of you know the Rand Paul circles about what, that, what America's right. goal is. 
that, that that's right. Uh, you don't know how many conservative journalists have contacted me personally and said, thank you for writing your pieces on Ukraine because I can't. I, I can't get away with it. So I'm glad you do. Uh, now only a few knuckles and eccentrics like uh, Ron Paul or, or me or whatever have a, opposed the Ukraine war. It's been a very unpopular position to take. <laughs> That's why Trump is so important for all his character flaws and lunacies and errors. He has one idea, which is exactly right. And he's got a big enough voice to shout down the echo chamber. And it's got, it's, he's the, really the only powerful voice of sanity in this that we have in the United States. Uh, the problem we've got now is now that the policy breaks down, it's not working, uh, what do you do? There are right. lots of things you could do. You could try to keep, you know, you could double down. That's Boris Johnson, uh, you know, who is, uh, you know, the you and him fight guy. The British are wonderful just to try to make themselves look relevant. They'll stir up trouble between major powers, which they no longer are. Despicable fellow, Johnson. Uh, we could do that with a double down. Secondly, we could do what Biden seemed to hint at last week, which is throw the throw Zelensky under the bus and let the Ukrainians, uh, sorry, let the Europeans take the blame for being the bad guys. Uh, that's how Henry Kissinger would do it. Uh, and a third thing we could do is we could escalate. We could go to the brink of nuclear war. We could uh, attack Russian positions inside uh, Ukraine. We could use American air power to oppose uh, Russian air power. Uh, I hope we don't do that, but I've got no idea what Biden will do because his administration has been so erratic. He personally is so weak that it's extremely difficult to know who's in charge from day to day. It really seems to be, you know, whoever seems to get into the Oval Office last. It's an incoherent administration. So, but yeah, I mean, you're who, right. But I don't know that. I'm. I, you you mentioned Carl uh, trying to climb down the tree that they planted, you know. But um, but um, I don't know whether there are, are is disagreement in the administration about what to do or not. I don't have any sense. You think that there are people who want to double down and they call is trying to well, walk, walk this it, back? It's very, as I said, it's extremely difficult to read the administration. Uh, Lloyd Austin is a very weak defense secretary. He doesn't enjoy the confidence of the president. He's not an important player in Washington politics. Uh, Tony Blinken is an ideological fanatic flanked by another ideological fanatic uh, Victoria Newland, the undersecretary. So the State Department is the lunatic asylum here. Uh, Jake Sullivan is very hard to read. He was Hillary Clinton's baggage carrier uh, for years. Before that, he was an aide to Amy Klobuchar. He's a young guy who has really no important experience, who's stuck in a job that he's not prepared for, so very difficult to predict what he might do. Uh, we do know the Pentagon believes the Ukrainians are in very bad shape. Most of the information that uh, is trickling out to the press about the scale of Ukrainian losses and their inability to sustain a war of attrition is coming from American military sources uh, who are very well informed. They've got people on the ground, they have satellites who can 
you know, satellites that can tell what Ukrainian soldiers are having for lunch. So uh, their information is pretty good and they're very worried about the course of the war. Soldiers tend to be a lot less willing to risk kinetic action than diplomats because they know about people getting killed. So if there's any source of sanity, I think it'll probably come from the Pentagon side. All right, well, um, let's just uh, round it out um, for this week and talk about uh, uh, Russia and, and Israel, because after all, this is the Middle East News Hour. And um, you know, Israel has been very moralistic in the way that the government has handled this. We had this weird sort of, I would say, pathetic effort by Prime Minister Naftali Bennett to, you know, be Miss America for a day and bring peace to the world when he flew off to Moscow to meet with uh, Putin on Shabbat when he's, you know, ostensibly an observant Jew because he was going to end the war. This was early on, I think, uh, somewhere around March or April. And of course, it led to nothing except that it made both sides, the Ukrainians and the Russians, profoundly angry at Israel because we didn't deliver the goods for either of them. So we weren't in a position to mediate the war. We put ourselves into a position as mediator in a war that we have nothing to do with, that we don't have a dog in this fight. And then in the end, we ended up coming down as America's ally, uh, very close, very hard, at least publicly, against Russia and uh, joining the joining the Western sanctions on Russia to varying degrees, and certainly speaking out against Russia very harshly, uh, particularly by foreign minister and alternate uh, prime minister and the main uh, power in the Israeli government, Yair Lapid. So now we have a situation where Russia is becoming increasingly hostile to Israel in our joint battleground of Syria. I mean, I, I think for, for many years it's been clear that Putin is unique in Russia in the sense that unlike, say, the Russian army, uh, and uh, diplomat the the establishment in Russia. He's not an anti-Semite, and yet Shoigo has made some pretty deeply anti-Semitic comments along the you know across the years. And there's a lot of antagonism towards Jews and towards Israel in in the in the Russian uh, political and military establishment. So this week, last week I think it was uh, uh, Israel uh, apparently uh, attacked uh, bombed Damascus airport. And uh, I think two or three days ago, uh, we're taping on Sunday, uh, Russia called for Israel to be condemned in the, New York, in the UN Security Council and said that they were drafting a resolution against Israel to, to, to condemn Israel for attacking the Damascus airport. And, and you, know, you, you look at this and you say, we, we're reaching a new, a new place in our relations with Russia, which is very dangerous for Israel. It's very dangerous for Israel because we have, uh, because we have Iran, which is now you know, a Russian ally uh, on our borders in the north, and uh, Russia's there protecting Iran, acting in alliance with Iran. And so if they decide that they want to turn their back on Israel because Israel sided with the United States in, in, in Ukraine, uh, Israel is, is pretty in, in, in quite a bit of trouble. Well, Israel is an American ally, and sometimes the best thing an ally can do for another ally is to advise it against actions which are self-destructive and refuse to abet them. Uh, I think the, Friends don't the, let friends drive drunk. Exactly. Uh, I think that a strong prime minister 
unlike your current one, someone like Netanyahu would not have let this happen. Um, Netanyahu, you can say many bad things about him, but he had the strength and the stature to, when necessary, stand up to the United States. Uh, I think the, uh, Israel has uh, made a grave error in taking sides in this. Uh, the only possibility of restraining Iran at this point, apart from destroying it militarily, which is an option that one hopes will not be used or have to be used. The only way to restrain Iran, it won't come out of the United States, get, you know, by, not from Biden. It'll come from Russia and China, which for, for their own reasons may tell the Iranians that they don't want a war in the region. China certainly doesn't want a war in the region. It would make it very hard for it to get the oil it needs to run its economy. China the, would be the biggest loser, along with India and Japan, I guess, of uh, a war in the Middle East. So Israel is really in, the, in a position now similar to the one it was in the days of Yeremiahu, Prophet Jeremiah, looking at Egypt versus Babylon. You make the wrong choice, you lose the Commonwealth. Um, Nebuchadnezzar was a horrible character. Our, our scripture has no sympathy for him at all. But aligning with the Egyptians against him was also a fatal mistake on Israel's part. Israel needs to maintain neutrality. Uh, it's the only thing that makes sense, particularly as the United States has undertaken a policy which has led to consequences deleterious for America's own strategic position. Nobody is doing us a favor by abetting and encouraging the errors of the Biden administration. I say that as a patriotic American. So I think Israel could have handled this much better and I hope the consequences uh, aren't too severe for getting off sides on this. Well, that's another question that I kind of want to end with, which is uh, leaving Israel and the competence or lack thereof of our current government on the side. Um, I, when I was I was talking before about you know the apparent and you know realignment of financial markets or separation of financial markets with the West on the one side and uh, and Russia and China and India and Brazil South Africa the, the, the BRICS countries on the other side and other countries joining them as well, um, but here uh, that that's an, on the economic front, but. It, there's also a, a military piece to this, of course, which is the uh, uh, which is a uh, Iran signed a, a strategic agreement with China uh, last year um, that is going to become more and more uh, substantive, I would assume, in the coming years. And you have Russia that is uh, falling more and more under Chinese orbit, either as a uh, as a protectorate, or, or you know, the the second, the the, the Britain to America, uh, on that side, or as a partner, depending on how it emerges from this war with Ukraine and what the state of its economy is. Um, but at any rate, this is much more of a tripartite axis than we've had in the past. Uh, Iran's leadership is also bragging about it, and has been for the past few months since uh, since the Russians invaded Ukraine, um, and. And I think that you know we're looking at a possibility of of an alliance having already been formed that would be uh, disastrous for Israel. 
Well, the alliance is going to be formed. China is going to be a major player in the Middle East. Uh, there's no question about it. Uh, I wrote a piece first in 2013 out of the title, A Pax Sinica, a Chinese piece in the Middle East, question mark. China is 30% of world manufacturing production, 15% of world trade and growing. Uh, given the fact that the United States has lost interest in spending blood and treasure for Middle Eastern security, China as the biggest oil importer from the Middle East is going to have to get involved. For years, the complaint about China was that it was a free rider on American right. military spending. Now, it's not gonna be a free rider. It's building a blue water Navy. It's building the Belt and Road Initiative transport links all through uh, the Eurasian continent. And it will be a major player. It's not quite sure what to do yet because it's trying to understand what the American exit means and what its role should be. I've spent a lot of time <clears throat> in Beijing talking to people about this. It's still a policy to be shaped. Uh, China's uh, presence in the Middle East to some extent displaced in the US is bad for Israel because China will never be an Israeli ally. China will never be anyone's ally. China, dealing with China is dealing like dealing with a mafia. You can deal with them under certain circumstances, but it's always tricky to do so, and it always has a catch. <laughs> At its best, America is a real ally of Israel. There is a real constituency in America which believes in the Israeli mission and loves Israel. However, the fact that China is going to become a bigger player in the Middle East is not necessarily a disaster for Israel because China is a fundamentally conservative power for its own self-interest, not out of the goodness of its heart. It does not want war in the Middle East. The last thing it wants is conflict between Saudi Arabia and Iran. It wants good relations with both. It wants good relations with Israel as an important source of technology. That's going to be an area of conflict because the United States is also dependent uh, on many kinds of Israeli technology, particularly in the artificial intelligence field. So there is limited room for Israel with great caution to find ways to work with China and shape the Chinese view of things because China may through its own errors or inattention contribute, for example, to Iranian aggressiveness. It has to understand what, what it should do in its own interest. So, I don't see the Israeli-China relationship as necessarily an antagonistic one. It will never be a friendly one, but it can be businesslike and in some ways mutually beneficial. You know, it, 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 uh, uh, I guess we're going to have to sign off soon, but you know, there's this, um, there's this uh, documentary series that's on uh, Israeli television now about the Eichmann trial. And it, it, there's something that what you said about the mafia kind of reminded me of a of of something that that I learned last night when I was watching. You know, uh, the head of Adenauer's secretariat was a senior Nazi who wrote the Nuremberg Laws, named Hans Globke. And um, the at the time that uh, Eichmann was standing trial in Jerusalem in 1961, um, the Germans were assisting. Israel in in the in the in its nuclear program, along with the French. And Israel was a poor country, extremely poor. And Germany had lots of money, 
and Israel needed Germany, despite the fact that Adenauer had built an administration that was stacked with former Nazis, including his senior aide, Globke, who you know, was, was very much involved in the Holocaust and worked very closely with Eichmann in, in undertaking and carrying it out. And so Ben-Gurion essentially told Gideon Hauser, Hausner that uh, you know, he had to not ask Eichmann about certain things that would have been very important in the pursuit of justice uh, for the Jewish people against, against the Nazis, against the Germans, and, and the annihilation of, of six of, uh, I mean, a third of the Jewish people, uh, just you know, 15 years earlier. Um, because Israel needed Germany. And, and the reason that I was reminded of it, first of all, I, it's, a, it's a miserable story. And, uh, and we were discussing it afterwards. And I said, you know, it's hard for me to find fault with Ben-Gurion as horrible and as noxious as what he ended up having to do was because we, you know, there is an overlap uh, between morality and, you know, worried about worrying and concern and caring for the Jewish people all over the world and Israel's role as a sovereign state of the Jewish people, but it's not, it's not 100%. I mean, there are areas where if Israel has to pursue its survival as a Jewish state, uh, it can come at the expense of, of larger Jewish interests. And that was certainly the case in covering up for the Nazis that were senior members of the Adenauer government. And um, here, you know, what we're talking about essentially is you've described two mafia states, the Russian mafia state and the Chinese mafia state that Israel has to figure out how to work with when the good guy, uh, the, you know, the, the guy with the white hat, the sheriff has, has has is acting in in a way that's both antithetical to its own national security interests and Israel's. Um, well, the, yes, I think that's exactly right, Carol. The Chinese uh, are typically not anti-Semitic at all. They look at us with a benign curiosity. We're very talented. We could be helpful. Of course, if the Jewish people were destroyed, the Chinese wouldn't shed a lot of tears for us. They watched a lot of small peoples be destroyed over the last 5,000 years, and they're not particularly shocked by the idea. So China will never be anyone's friend, certainly not Israel's friend, but it doesn't have to be Israel's enemy. And there are ways in which China's presence in the Middle East may not be harmful and may even have a certain positive, for example, in restraining Iran from starting a war of which China would be the biggest loser. Oh, I see. All right. Well, listen. I think we're gonna we're gonna have to uh, we're gonna have to end it with that. Uh, but it's uh, it's a lot of things that we've we've discussed today, David, isn't it? I mean, when, with with the Ukraine war and America's mishandling of it, really from the outset, um, and and Russia's ability uh, to withstand the sanctions being first and foremost a strategic uh, disaster that the United States under the Biden administration has caused here. Um, you know, we're seeing a vast reformation of, of the global order. And, uh, and it's not uh, to the West's benefit at all. And it leaves countries like Israel who are looking at Ukraine and what's happened there uh, with a lot of questions and a lot of and a lot of interests that are at stake, 
uh, as it as it views the uh, I don't know what you call it the the reshuffling of the global deck because I don't think anything's been shuffled. I think that a lot of the cards are still on the table and waiting for somebody to pick them up. But uh, it's it's a very unstable situation, and under those circumstances, we have to figure out what the sure bets are and and what the uh, what the high risk moves are, and do as few as of the latter and as many as the former as we possibly can. Yes. Well, thank you for this, Carol. It's always a pleasure to speak to you. I don't envy Israel's task. I don't envy America's. All right. Well, <laughs> all right. Well, thank you very much, David. And and remember, guys, you know, watch me on JNS and also on the other channels that that are carrying this. Subscribe to my channel. Subscribe to the News Hour and send it out to everybody that you know and nodding acquaintances as well. And uh, make sure that we get the news out because the more that we understand the things that are happening in the world, the more, the better able we're going to be to make the kind of choices that we need to make in these very uncertain times. So thank you very much, David, and thank you all for watching and listening to us today. Thank you.